Amen. You can be seated. And our kids are dismissed for Bible Adventures. If they'd like to head out at, at this time, they're welcome to, to go do that. A quick reminder, after service, immediately after service, we're going to bring in all the extra chairs that we have. So if you're able to help us out for five minutes, that would be fantastic to get ready for Thelma's funeral uh, next Saturday. We're continuing our series called Diversity, thinking about what it means to be a diverse community. And we're thankful for the ways that we have a diversity and in all ways uh, currently. And we want to strive for that to continue to be a place where that is a high priority because as we've talked about, it matters to God. It matters that we would be in relationship with people that aren't like us so we can grow and learn from them, so we can recognize the strengths of uh, their lives and also some of the strengths that we have to offer in those relationships uh, as well. So we've been thinking about this idea. And this morning I want to talk about what I believe God's intention is for us as a, a body, as a, as a representative of uh, Jesus Christ uh, in, the, in our city and in the world. A few years ago, I was talking with someone who d- doesn't live here, lives somewhere else, so I don't try to think of who this might be, but I was talking to someone who goes to a, a very large church in another city, and she was telling me, I really appreciate that they have a Saturday night service because then I can just get church out of the way. And I hope one day we would have a Saturday night service. Honestly, that would be wonderful. I would, I would, I would love that. But what a horrible way to understand what a church is, right? What a, it's, just never say that again. If you ever go to a Saturday night service, that's all right with me. But like, just a terrible way to phrase that because what we are together isn't like something that we're checking off a box. We are, as the song would tell us, family, basically. We are designed to be a place where we come together, and it's not just that we check off a box. It's that we're part of, a, of a, an organism. We're part of something larger than just ourselves. And you see that right from the very beginning of Jesus's ministry. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus has this interaction with his mom and his family. He says, and it tells us this, Jesus's mother and brothers arrived where he is. He's doing some teaching inside a house. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. Jesus says, or they say, who, your mother and brothers are looking for you. And Jesus replies, who are my mother and brothers? Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother, my sister, and my mother. So, mom, give me a break, basically. <laughs> and this is a shocking thing for me, for all of us to hear. And in some ways, it's a real priority check for all of us to say, is my church family, does it have that same sort of standing perhaps, or even above the standing that I feel in my family, the connection? It's a challenging thing for Jesus to teach, but it would have been even more challenging in that time and in that place. Because Jesus comes from what sociologists would call a strong group society. Strong group society is a society that's based more on the community than the individual. Now, in the U.S., we are what is called, and don't take offense, this is someone else saying that, not me. We're a weak group society where we are all just individuals. And we talked last week about some of the dangers of just thinking of yourselves as just an individual and not thinking of yourself in the larger context. But for example, Jesus is often referred to as the son of Joseph. Like he's not just Jesus, but it's like always has that along with him. And there are actually most societies in world history are strong group cultures and not weak group cultures. 
Most societies are more communal-based than individual. In some places in the world, uh, we don't need to go to that yet. Uh, in some, some places, oh, that's like a long time from now. In so, some places in the world, you would introduce yourself not as, you know, hi, my name is Brian, I'm a pastor. You would say, hi, like, my name is Brian, son of this person. or something, and, like, and you kind of like list off your family line. And in some cultures, they really do a great job of honoring grandparents and people who are ahead because it's just a different way of viewing things. And also in that society, Jesus and his contemporaries, they would have understood that marriage wasn't like for your individual spark. Like we have movies like When Harry Met Sally where our heart melts at the end. We're like, oh, it's so great, the romantic comedies. And they, they, it's like so wonderful, your heart melts in the end. And it's like, that's what I want. I just want someone to look at me like she looks at him. Like I just want that relationship. And we, in a lot of ways, think of that as like the, the best thing. That's the ideal of what we want. But in that society, marriage was arranged for you. And it would be like generally more for the good of the family than for your own individual thing. And it's pretty shocking, and we think that's crazy. I don't know how I would do that. Actually, it's studies show that arranged marriages do better than people picking. So if you want me to pick someone for you, I'm happy to do that. Um, but you would have your spouse picked for you. And so in that society, in that place, your spouse wasn't on the pedestal that we can sometimes put our spouses on. Who it was that was most important to you relationally was your siblings. Your brothers, your sisters, those were the people who were of like utmost importance to you because you didn't get to pick your spouse. Those are the people who you, you wanted to, to be near, and those are the people who are often like very, very similar to you that you could maybe complain about the person that you've got arranged to be married to or whatever. And so Jesus, in this moment, what he says is, is very profound. He says, these are my brothers and sisters. This is my family, the, the highest relationship that you might think of that comes to mind in that time in that place, these, you, you people around me, those of you who do the will of God, those of us who are trying to do the will of God together as a community, we are family. These are my siblings. And then through the New Testament, the word brother and sister is used to describe the relationship of Christians with each other. 342 times that phrase is used to describe what it is that the church is supposed to be, who it is that we are supposed to be together. So it isn't something you can just check off your list on a Saturday night. The church is not an event. It's not a building. It's a group of people who have decided and committed to each other, we are a family. And that's something that's really hard. Again, it's, it's a challenge, and it's, it's really radical that Jesus would do this and that he would say this and that he would encourage us to then say, this is who you are supposed to be. This is what you're supposed to be together. But I think, as we've talked about, in our society, individualism is killing us. And we're lonely. And we need a place where we're committed to each other. We need a place that we can look at each other and say, like, you are my family. And I have to tell you, one of the ways that I see this in, in my ministry is when I see someone around town who has decided to leave our church for whatever reason, and I'll, and I'll just, you know, run into them somewhere. Like, I, I see them, 
And I have to tell you, if you ever decide to leave our church and run into you, I don't feel awkward around you. It's generally the other people I feel that feel awkward around me. But when I see them, a piece of my heart is like, oh, it's really good to see you. You know, we used to have this, it's kind of like running into an ex. Like we used to, we used to have this thing. We used to show up for each other. We used to, I used to see you every single week. And now I don't. And it's not because of me. Like, I, you know where I am every week. <laughs> I really don't feel awkward around you. But when I see someone like that, a piece of my heart hurts. And when we lose someone like Bob or we lose someone like Thelma, and we realize that we are never going to get to talk to those people again, you realize that there's a commitment that we have together. You realize that there's something special about our relationships. There's something special and profound and significant about what it is that we share when we commit to something, when we're involved in each other's lives, and we're trying to serve the Lord together. Jesus would say, yeah. It's because look around this room. These are your brothers, your sisters, your mothers, your uncles. Yeah, you have your biological family, but this is a family that you are choosing to be part of. This is a family that you're trying to sacrifice for. This is a family that you are trying to live into together. And I think it's moments like that when I realize how much I miss somebody that I see randomly around town, that I realize the, the relational part of what we're doing together. There's a book called The Relational Soul that says, what does loneliness tell us about ourselves? Loneliness is proof of our relational design. At the core of our being is this truth. We are defined, we're designed for relationship. We are born to participate in the lives of others. We are relational souls. And it's in the relationships that, that we have together and relationships that we have in church that I think we, we grow together. Sometimes we're challenged. Sometimes people that challenge us are here, and we have to figure out how to love those people anyway. It's a struggle sometimes to be in like real community and deep relationship with each other, but it's profound what happens when we can grow and learn from things. Because from the very beginning, when you are born, even before you're born, studies show that as you're in the womb, you are listening to voices, and so when a baby comes out, your son or daughter will already know the mother's voice or the father's voice. Already, we're relational from the very beginning, right when life starts. And then our parents do one thing or another to screw us up. Or our families are not perfect. And so there's a whole research field called attachment theory about how you were cared for as a very, very, very young child is how you will give and receive love later in your life. And then even as you continue to grow up, the ways that your parents loved you correctly and then sometimes didn't, there are things that you would say, like, I I wish that they wouldn't have done that. I don't want to pass that on to my kids. Or there's things that you do want to pass on and you're really intentional about doing those things. And so we've all experienced brokenness from our family. And I think as, as a church community, we get a chance to sometimes heal together. So you had a bad relationship with your dad. Okay, we can heal together. And so the next time you see him, you can handle it a little more maturely. You didn't have a great relationship with a sibling. We can heal together. What happens at church is we get a chance to 
sometimes heal from some of the brokenness that exists in our families, and sometimes recognize the ways that we fall short, how we're part of the problem. Because one of the temptations is just to say it's everyone else's fault and it's not my issue. But then we keep running into that same issue over and over and over again. In a church family, we get the opportunity to recognize that as we seek God together, there are things that we learn and we grow and we get the chance to to grow together as we form the kingdom of God, which is sometimes a little bit weird and complicated. There's a book called Opening Up by an author named James Penbreaker, and he mentions a study about uh, trauma and its effect on people. And as he started this study, he thought that the result would be that the most traumatic events that happened to somebody were hardest for them to get over. So very traumatic things, and I apologize if some of you have experienced some of these things, but like the death of a spouse or, or a situation like rape that is very traumatic and horrible, and his anticipation was it would be along the spectrum that the more traumatic things that happen to somebody, they would be more difficult to get over than some things that are a little bit perhaps less traumatic than we might think. So he did this study across thousands of people as they dealt with trauma. And he was trying to figure out how is it that some people seem to recover from trauma, like they've been through some really, really hard stuff, but yet they're able to kind of figure life out and come out at least somewhat functional on the other side of it. How do some people do it and some people don't? And his anticipation was if it was a really, really hard thing that you faced, then you probably struggled to get some sort of healing in your life. So that was what he was expecting. But what he found was the nature of the trauma was next to irrelevant. What mattered was that whatever traumatic experience happened, on the other side of it, did you have healthy, loving relationships? Did you have people who were there for you, who loved you, who you could open up to about whatever it is that you were experiencing? Did you have real, authentic community? And that's wild to me, because I would have assumed exactly what he did, that the really, really hard things would have been really, really hard to get over. I'm not saying it's ever easy, but he said it's amazing how relationships can heal us. And I think that's hard because when things get difficult for us, when we've dealt with something that's really hard, whether it's like in our our community or whether it's something that's happened to us, that's at the moment when we are tempted to hide. That happens from the very beginning of Scripture when Adam and Eve sin. They try to play hide-and-seek with God, which is a game you're not going to win. But they are there in the garden, and their impulse is, I'm going to cover this thing up. Let's just pretend like this didn't happen. And God, actually, in God's grace, I think plays dumb for a minute and says, where are you guys? Come reveal yourselves to me. Because oftentimes when we face something that's difficult, our temptation is to close up, to walk away, to say, I'm done with this. Manny and I were a couple months from getting married. And because of that, she had, as, as the bride, a very, very long list of things that she had to do, uh, like picking napkins and things like that. And she gave me one job. She said, what, what you need to do is you need to find the apartment that we're going to live in. 
And for whatever reason, I just wasn't really working that hard on that job. And it was one of those moments where she came to me and was like, you had one job, basically. And uh, she, she was getting a little bit frustrated with me, and I think it was fair. And she was saying, come on, like, this is, where, where's the apartment? What progress have you made? Have you called anybody? And I was like, oh, not really. And so she got very frustrated with me. And I got a little bit frustrated back with her. You know, that can happen in conflict even when you're wrong. And so I was... <laughs> frustrated, and I was just like, I am just not going to talk to her until she talks to me. And so I didn't text her. She didn't text me. We didn't talk for about a 36-hour period. And guess who broke? It was me, yeah. It was finally me who, who sent the, the text and said, let's, let's meet up. And we met and solved our problem over Mexican food, which uh, we've only had a couple times in our marriage where we've had to say, all right, this is like the emergency thing. Let's go have some Mexican food and, and uh, talk, talk this one out. But I remember like playing that in my head a little bit. It was just a couple months before the marriage. It's like, what are we going to do? Just not have the wedding? And like, sorry, the bride and groom aren't talking to each other. If you bought a plane ticket, we really apologize to you. I played that out uh, in in my head. And I remember just having that feeling that, okay, we are having this conflict and something's going on and I just want to close up. I don't want to work through this. I want to be selfish. She said something that was hurtful to me. I'm just going to be selfish about this. I'm just not going to talk to her. And I think that is what often happens when we have a conflict or when we have an issue. We just act like we can just walk away. And I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to deal with it. It's kind of hard for me to talk to that person. I'm just not ever going to deal with it. And I think that's what we do a lot in our culture today. We act like we can just walk away from relationships, walk away from churches, and it just doesn't really matter. Once they do something there, you know, I don't really like, I'm not all that in support of, I'm just going to go somewhere else. What Jesus would say is the problem is, that's not what you're doing together, though. When you are committed to each other, when you are a family, you can't just walk away. Because what you are doing is more sacred than that. What you're doing together, it matters more than that. You can't just walk away. You can, I guess, but you don't realize what you're missing. There's a man named Joseph Hellerman, who's a historian, has done some work on spiritual formation. And he says this, spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. When people are together, people who remain contented with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding, and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. Long-term interpersonal relationships, the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay grow. I think this is true. And I would say a few things as, as disclaimer. First, some of you know some people who have left our church over the years, and this isn't like me throwing shade at anybody. Preachers don't throw shade, or they try not to. What 
I think this is, is saying the danger. And I understand there's reasons sometimes that people would leave a church or go somewhere else. I, I totally get that there are legit reasons uh, to do that at times. But what I think this is more of an implication of is somebody who would leave one place and then go to another place and then go to another place and then go to another place. It's like, okay, if, if that place isn't the right one for you, then where is it that you are committing to? Like, what is it that you're going to say, all right, I'm going to stick this through? Because oftentimes, whenever that conflict starts to happen, it's when we go, well, peace out. I'm just not going to work on that anymore. And that's all a you problem and not a me problem. And that doesn't ultimately help us to, to grow and then move on. Secondly, I would say, just because you're here doesn't mean that you're growing. Like, just because you have a pulse and you're showing up doesn't mean that you're actually growing. You have to invest in what we're doing here and invest in, in what's happening. And third, I also want to say that for those of you who are actively participating in our church, this isn't like, all right, we're going to lock the doors and nobody can leave because that gets a little cultish after a while. We have the freedom. That's what makes a church a special place. It's a place people can come and they can choose to participate and choose to be involved in or not. But I do think what he says is very profound and very true. People who stick things out grow. And that's just not at church. It's in relationships in general. Those who will actually stick something out and do the hard work of love and forgiveness and do the hard work of what it means to actually roll up your sleeves and be amongst people and know some of their problems and their weaknesses, but choose to love them anyway. That's when you grow. And I have to tell you, it's through some, I've been in ministry for 11 years, and it's the easy stuff has been really nice, and I've enjoyed those seasons, but I think I've grown more during the hard seasons of ministry than the easy seasons of ministry. And I don't want to sign up for another hard season but still, I'm thankful for the ways that I feel like God has worked on my heart during that season and helped me to grow in some areas that I wouldn't have necessarily chosen. But I'm thankful for the things that I've learned during those seasons. And I think I've matured a lot during some of that. And some of you are thinking, wow, this is the mature version of Brian. I know, I still have a long way to go. But there are things that I've learned through hard seasons and through difficult things that I couldn't have learned any other way. And I think it's true that people who stay grow. People who commit to something somewhere grow. Because eventually, things are going to come up. And it's going to be tempting at that moment. Back to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, when God comes and says, what exactly happened here? Adam says, it was the woman that you put here with me, basically. I'm just going to leave you two here to go figure that, out, that one out. And Adam definitely played a role there, right? <laughs> Oftentimes when we have conflicts and we have issues, it's easy to just be like, nope, it was all them. They're the problem. They're the issue. The way they see the world is wrong. Whatever is happening. And sometimes we need to do the hard work of saying, why does this keep happening to me? Why do I go from community to community to community? And this same problem seems to be coming up. How am I playing a role in this? And ultimately, it's important for us to recognize that as we are part of a church community together, it isn't just something that we check a box off of. We are part of a family. And I'm so thankful for the ways that we have a diverse family here, and we want to continue to grow in that because it's diverse groups of people Loving, together, loving each other together, I believe we truly grow.
and we recognize exactly what it is that we are committing to together, it's in those places that I think we truly grow. On the cross, as Jesus is near his death, there's this interesting part that John tells us in John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, which is what John calls himself, which is a little bit arrogant, but that's what John calls himself, disciple whom he loved. Uh, that's a very interesting way to say that, but he loved all, this, all of them, but he has a note for himself. He said to his mother, woman, here's your son. So mom, I'm going to be coming back in a few days, but not forever. So John, Mary, here's your mother, and here's your son. I love that line. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Because of what Jesus is doing on the cross. There's a new family that's born. Because of the work of Jesus' blood, bringing all people together. Jesus says, this is your son. And this is your mom. What a blessing it is when we get a chance to experience that community together when we recognize that though we are different, we are family. And I've had moments when I've got the opportunity to realize that. Just a few weeks ago, Suzanne sent me a text. It was late in the afternoon, and, and she said, are you free right now? Simon needs a ride somewhere, but I can't take him at that time. Would you be able to give him a ride? And I said, he could, but I have the kids for the next couple hours, and he can come hang out with us. We have to go get Carter cleats at the store. And so here's a picture of Simon uh, putting cleats on Carter. And I have to say, I couldn't have survived that trip without Simon because I had Nora there too. And Nora is just a mess right now as far as if she's in a store, she just goes all over, takes everything and throws it off the shelf. So I wasn't anticipating that I needed some more hands to do this. But I'm super glad that, that Simon ended up as part of this journey with me only for the cost of a short ride somewhere. And unfortunately, Carter did not pick the pink cleats. He went with something else. He loves pink right now. He went, those pink, the size in pink didn't work for him. But I love this picture that I took of them as uh, Simon was, was helping him. And it felt way cool for Carter to have like a cooler person than me helping him out um, with this. And for that moment, Carter gets a chance to have an uncle here who he doesn't have. And in that moment, hanging out with Simon, I have an extra younger brother that I don't even want. <laughs> because when you see examples of this, of people being together and spending time, people of all ages, different generations, and different backgrounds, we get a chance to realize exactly what Jesus is doing on the cross. Because of the work of God, you have new brothers, you have new sisters, you have an extra mom, an extra grandma. And it doesn't make you love your actual family 
any less, but it helps your love to grow. One of our mottos here is to be a home in L.A., and I hope that we will always keep that as a priority because as Jesus dies on the cross, he says, woman, behold your son, and John, here's your mom. May we find ways to live sacrificially for each other and to recognize that this is truly what we are as a church. That sometimes your family is going to disappoint you. Sometimes it's going to be a challenge. But that's ultimately when we can learn and grow together. As we think of the family that we have here, I couldn't help but think of a quote by Ben Powell who says, at the end of the day, I want to be able to say I contributed more than I criticized. I wouldn't that be an awesome thing for all of us to try and strive for as a community? Not just here in our church, but at work, in your neighborhood? What if it could be said about you? You contribute more than you criticize. You say, yeah, my family's not perfect. Some of those people, I don't know if I would be friends with them if it wasn't for Jesus. But I'm going to continue to contribute by showing up, by being there, because it matters. Because from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he looks at a group of people and he says, these are my brothers, my sister, my mother. Maybe recognize that this is what we are to each other. And we're providing each other a home in L.A. May we commit to each other so that the people who stay, may we all grow together. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for this new family that you've given all of us. We're thankful for the ways that we see it and the ways that we're committed to each other. May we continue to strive to love each other more, to be in each other's lives, to commit. Father, we're thankful for the family that we have here, the ways that it's diverse already. And may we continue to find ways to love each other, forgive each other, and grow as you would ask us to. Your son, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. We're going to sing the song that we've sung many times now. If you want to stand, it's called Build My Life. And this song, I hope as we sing it this time specifically, you'll think about building your life around the truth of the family that God has called you into. Let's worship together.